Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is Aaron Penneberg, and this is All Things HEMA. This is episode two. This is going to start out with a question and answer from some listeners um, to the topic of to tournament or not to tournament. That indeed is the question, and how it relates to the three tracks I mentioned in episode one. So first, some exciting news. Episode one was uh, well-received in the HEMA community, and uh, it's had several hundred plays. And in addition to that, um, I've received a lot of questions uh, via the email, and you can always reach me at swordcoach at gmail.com. Again, swordcoach at gmail.com. I do um, enjoy getting questions, so if you have some questions, send them my way. I'll either do separate podcasts regarding them, or I'll address them like I'm doing now in uh, in this kind of format. So, also exciting news, I have a sponsor, Albion Swords, history in your hand. I want to thank Chief Operating Officer Mike Sigmund, who uh, has agreed to have Albion uh, be a sponsor for this particular podcast, All Things HEMA. You know, Albion and I have a long history of working together, and uh, I sure do appreciate everything they do uh, in in that company because a lot of folks, I guess, don't realize, but um, Albion really produced one of the first sparring line type of historical weapons uh, that were uh, researched by Peter Johansson, the uh, noted Swedish swordsmith, and um, I was involved in testing one of the first copies of the Lichtenauer um, for the team at that time to check them out. Uh, That was many, many years ago. But those tools really transformed how we were able to look at HEMA in terms of its practice and practical application. Prior to that, we were using like styrofoam swords that we made out of uh, steel um, bars and and tape and things like that. So uh, Albion, your products are amazing and I appreciate your uh, support of this particular podcast. All right, so questions. Uh, The first two questions I want to address are from Lee Montgomery over there in Newark, Ohio. And um, the questions are the following. Question one, when is an appropriate time for a study group to transition to being a club or is such a distinction even necessary or helpful? And then question two, what are the potential benefits of affiliating your club to an organization and how can you determine which if any, organizations are the best fit. So uh, in typical Aaron fashion, I'm going to take these questions out of turn. And um, I'm also going to kind of start at the back end of question number two. And uh, that is, um, how can you determine which, if any, organizations are the best fit? And then I'll work through the rest of the question and then wrap around to question number one. Um. That is a very important question, and it's one of those things where, I guess, it depends on the nature of your particular club or group, and that is, uh, is it one person who owns the club as like a small business or something like myself, or is it a group of people who make decisions based upon some kind of democratic process? Uh, There's a lot of groups I'm aware of that do it like that. Um, Are you a nonprofit? Several groups do it in that fashion. You know, what kind of 
organization or club or um, process do you have in terms of decision making? So each one of those things are going to have kind of a slightly different answer. But one of the important things I think that's being asked is, you know, what is the right flavor? What is the right mix of, of possibly the feeling behind the particular organization and how it's how it's constructed, how much freedom do you have in your local club? Um, all those kind of questions are really important. Um, if you don't know, I have a history in that I used to belong to ARMA, the Association of Renaissance Martial Arts. And um, that's kind of how I became uh, involved in HEMA many, many years ago under the direction of uh, John Clements, who ran that club very much like um, his own little fiefdom in a way. And I'm not saying anything particularly uh, stunning. There's a lot of people who uh, know that and um, he acknowledges it himself. So there's something to be said for that kind of organization in terms of its structure. Uh, what it has going for it is that um, decisions administratively can be made quickly. Um, there's a pretty much a unilateral kind of format in terms of you know, everyone understands kind of the direction that, that everyone's heading in. And it can be one of those things where like if you don't have time to worry about the organization, administration of a particular club, you just want to get in there and fence and, you know, wear a club t-shirt and stuff and be a part of something, then it allows you to do that. And there's a lot of folks I know that belong to you know, ARMA and some other organizations like it because they don't really have to make any decisions. They can just show up, wear the colors, and um, and fence. And there's a lot to be said for that kind of um, situation. You know, many of us lead lives that are very busy. You know, you're professionals out there or your business owners yourself or your students or what have you. And uh, you just don't have time really to worry about the organization of a HEMA club and and that's understandable that was me for for many many years now over time i came to realize the weaknesses in that kind of setup and um you know over time you just kind of grow out of it certainly there was some drama as usual but um at the end of the day i always wanted to have a club which really kind of reflected the way in which I wanted to approach HEMA because at the time there really wasn't any organization I felt that was doing it properly. And I say properly meaning just in my opinion the way a HEMA club could and should work. That could and should really has a lot to do with the three tracks. Um, I felt like um, I wanted to avoid the elitist mentality, yet at the same time, I wanted to be a, aggressive in terms of approaching the, the, the techniques and the tactics, and I wanted to you know, train hard, and I wanted to be serious about it, yet not take myself too seriously. You know, very different concepts, right? Taking the subject seriously versus, versus uh, taking yourself seriously. Um, yet at the same time, I yeah, I got to admit, I did want to be recognized for how much work I was putting into it. And there's nothing wrong with that, provided it's done, you know, in a, in a positive way. So uh, when we came out of Arma, then uh, myself and Jeremiah Bachhaus and the uh, the Hanson brothers in Lacrosse, uh, working with Tyler there in Lacrosse, uh, just a few of us decided to try to form something. 
And we formed the Wisconsin Historical Fencing Association, and we formed it as a very like democratic kind of uh, entity with uh, Robert's Rules and the whole bit. And what happened is, so we all live in geographic, you know, diff- different areas over the state of Wisconsin. You know, La Crosse is like four hours away from Appleton, uh, Milwaukee and West Bend over there by Jeremiah Bachhaus is like two and a half hours or so. Uh, needless to say, you know, we're all kind of substantial geographically uh, located in such a way that isn't super convenient to train or to meet and, and whatnot. So... Of those groups at the time, I did have the largest group in terms of numbers, and I wanted to have like a club logo and a club t-shirt, and I wanted to kind of get these just basic things in place, and um, you know, to to all their credits, um, we had decided that this is the way we're going to do it, and so we had to have votes, we had to have um, meetings and things to have this kind of stuff passed, and I got to be honest with you, it's entirely my own fault, but I just got fed up with administrative processes um, that just seemed to inhibit and like get in the way of, of easy decisions to be made. You know, like what were our club colors going to be? Well, does it, you know, does it really matter? I mean, it kind of matters, but let's just figure something out that's cool and, and run with it. You know, uh, what's our logo going to look like? Uh, you know, I don't know. Let's put a sword in there and a freaking badger and stay Wisconsin. We're good to go. You know, so I'm, I'm one of those individuals that is, is pretty patient up to a point, And then when I lose my patience with that stuff, I'm just done and I make a decision and I'm moving on. Uh, and so what happened is I contacted them all and I said, look, you guys, you know, I love you, but I'm tired of all these meetings and crap just to figure out what color t-shirts are going to be. Uh, uh, I'm going to take the Appleton chapter as the WHFA, the Wisconsin Historical Fencing Association, and I'm going to make it an LLC. So I took that and I formed it as a small business. Um, I kind of separated myself from the decision-making process of those guys, but I said, look, you know, I respect you all, you're good friends, and I want to still maintain our relationship, so why don't you guys be the WHFA too, just you'll be the WHFA West Bend or WHFA Lacrosse or whatever your your location chapter name is going to be. You know, we even determined, like, we don't care if you call yourself, like, you know, the Wolverines or something uh, without the WHFA in it, perhaps, you know, that, that'd be fine too. Uh, and then that spawned off with um, the New Jersey club, our sister club over there with uh, Eric White. And uh, we wanted, you know, to be involved with them as well. So that's kind of how, um, oh, well, then of course, Greece as well with uh, George Zacropoulos and um, uh, Renos, um, all those guys over there. We wanted to still be involved with them too. So that's how the HFA got started, the Historical Fencing Affiliates, which just meant like we all recognize in our own individual geographic areas and our own visions for particular clubs that we wanted to be in charge of and run. You know, we all had little different ideas about how that should go down and why encumber ourselves and create all sorts of stress and create one umbrella organization that's going to be run by one individual that we're all going to have to placate, you know, like uh, previous clubs I mentioned, and instead just simply form our own thing that we could still kind of associate together and and belong together. Um, And so that's how it went down. And so far that's worked out really well. It's worked out really well because it's extremely versatile and each of us can kind of take our own clubs and run them in such a way that um, as far as a business or as far as a democratic kind of uh, club or loose affiliation of people can still form and proceed in such a way that they feel most comfortable with. 
Now, having said all that, um, in addition to, to those kind of ideas, like I said, that, that flavor, that, that feeling has to be present. So I can see, and I remember back in the day when it was like myself and Jeremiah and like two other guys that were practicing and we were calling ourselves, you know, the WHFA, um, but we didn't really have any structure at all in place. And then you got to take that kind of idea or that feeling like three friends getting together in a backyard even before that time, right? And then you have to start figuring out like, all right, you know, of us three, right, us three loose individuals, who's got the most skin in the game, who's got the most passion, who's got the most resources even, that's a, that's a serious consideration, right? It takes, takes money to make money in, in many ways, but um, who, who amongst us wants to drive this thing. And if we all want to drive it, um, then you all just have to figure out a way in which that works. Um, and it can work. I've seen it work. But, you know, there's a little bit more consideration to have in terms of that structure. But you got to kind of figure that stuff out. Um, so then moving forward, if there is an organization out there, um, such as the HFA or such as the, you know, the HEMA Alliance or some other club out there that's already existing, um, and and you like the way it's structured and you can see, you know, the positive aspects of it and it's kind of um, fitting with your overall scheme, then, you know, it's it's important to check into that because, you know, the benefits of joining an existing club that that have this kind of stuff in place is that it provides structure. It provides some um, uh, advice that you can get. It provides some notoriety. It provides some integrity. It just provides a base with which you can start building from. I will say that the HFA, I think, is one of those things where because we've kind of bracketed the, the ranking structure in such a way that it's building teachers, it's building instructors, and it's building instructors not just within itself, right? Part of, and I know we haven't gone through it, and I, I plan on going through it very uh, specifically soon, so everyone understands the rank structure in terms of how it works, but it's forcing you to go outside of the HFA at certain steps. So in other words, when you get up to the higher ranks, you know, you need to go outside the HFA to gain more experience, and it forces you to do that. If you don't do that, then you might not progress into the higher ranks, you know, because it's saying, uh, basically to itself, it's saying, look, we might not have all the answers within our organization, and so therefore we push you outside of the organization to go and, and, and journey. It's called the journeyman rank, basically, and it's a step to go ahead and travel to other clubs and other groups and see, you know, what can be learned and determined by that stuff. So that's just one of those things. So that's, I think, the power of the HFA in, in, a, in a way is that it, it does not limit you or uh, hold you into a box um, that you must fit. It, it lets you um, have a large variance in terms of how you run your organization, like I said, as a business or as a group of democratic individuals. There are no specific uh, regulations as far as what you must do at, at that kind of uh, formative point. Uh, there are no dues. You're not paying anything uh, to the organization. Um, we had talked about that as far as like just being able to create certificates uh, to release as the HFA. 
But then we realize there's a, a piece in our charter which indicates essentially that whatever club that belongs to HFA, whatever certificates they issue, each of us is going to honor those certificates and recognize them as you know members of the HFA. So if uh, Jeremiah issues a certificate of free scholar to one of his his persons based on his test, um, then the Appleton chapter here is going to recognize it. Just like in Greece, if if they issue a certificate of, of a, a particular rank, then then we're going to recognize it here in the U.S., etc. So that's that's kind of the benefits of the HFA. So um, yeah, uh, just to summarize again, what are the potential benefits of affiliating your club to an organization? Uh, that's it, right? Legitimacy, some kind of structure already, some kind of um, uh, springboard for you to to get you know get on board with things and get excited about stuff, um, get some kind of advice, and again, just have some kind of legitimacy established, right? There's one thing if it's like two guys in the backyard studying out of uh, you know out of a book versus, hey, we belong to the HFA or we belong to the Hema Alliance or whatever, and we have, you know, X, Y, and Z instructor that we talk to from time to time. So, you know, we can reach out to this experience and we can have some reasonable semblance of uh, understanding that there's, there's some kind of connection there with somebody who's been doing it for a while. All right, so hopefully that answered that question to some extent. I could probably talk about that topic for about a month as well, but I'm going to move on. And now the first question again, when is an appropriate time for a study group to transition to being a club? Or is such a distinction even necessary or helpful? I mean, yeah, it's, it's helpful. It's helpful to identify yourself as something, right? If you don't identify as something, then you're really nothing, right? Um, and I, I say that tongue-in-cheek a bit, but... Um, what I mean by that is, again, that idea of like, you know, three people in the backyard swinging swords around at each other uh, from a book trying to do something versus, hey, uh, welcome to the Wisconsin Historical Fencing Association. Here are a certain set of standards that we have in terms of our methodology. Here's what we believe in. Here's what we're going to accomplish. Now, if it's just two people doing that, right, in a practice, that that is something versus just, oh, let's just get together and see what happens. I mean, everyone goes through that stage where you just get together and kind of feel this out a little bit and see if it's something you even want to invest more money in or want to invest more time in. Um, and that's great. Um, everyone, like I said, has that kind of stage that they go through. But what it is important is that when you decide to be something, be a club, come up with a name, come up with some kind of affiliations, um, decide upon a certain strategy as far as how you're going to progress in terms of building practices and things, um, that is noticed. That gets recognized. Um, I really don't do any promoting. I don't uh, have any commercials. I don't take any leaflets. I don't do any of that stuff. And what's happened over time is that simply word of mouth has um, netted me over the last you know three years, 70 plus students. Um, and it's just basically because, again, I don't take myself seriously, but I do take the practice of what we do seriously. And I take the formation of the club seriously in, in at least such a way that I'm passionate about protecting it so that if someone's, you know, being a goof or something or someone's not respecting the safety uh, rules that we have or someone's not, um, you know, training appropriately and being too rough or not rough enough or whatever. The point is, is that because we are something, 
you know, I can say, hey, look, uh, you know, hey, look, Jeremiah, um, stop being so rough with with these students. You know, just because you're from Alaska and one forged in fire doesn't mean you can rough up Ben Lehman constantly. Right. Which is a joke, of course. But you see the idea, right? It, it gives like it gives you permission in such a way to represent something besides yourself. So it's not really like Aaron Pennenberg telling you that. It's a provost of the WHFA Appleton telling you that, right? Which is helps immensely uh, over time, especially when your club starts to grow. Um, is such a distinction necessary, though? I guess that's, a, that's almost a separate idea. And the necessary piece depends upon what you're trying to accomplish, right? So if if it's not necessary to have lots of students and to, you know, to push yourselves in training and stuff, and it's just it's good enough to get together and fool around with the swords and see if you can figure out knock ricin or you know some of these other concepts and techniques you might read about or see online or hear about or watch YouTube videos on or whatever, um, then yeah, I guess that's that's fine. You know, it just depends on what your motivation is, where your goals lie. You know, where you see your future, you know, that kind of stuff. So I also got some complaints about uh, drinking while I do this. And I'm sorry, but my mouth gets so dry that um, it's impossible not to. So what I have noticed, though, listening to myself is like the noise of me drinking was quite annoying. So I'll try and minimize that and make it as fast as I possibly can. So there. And I'm drinking coffee, by the way, not spirits. Okay, so now we move on to the next uh, section of the podcast, and that is tournaments. To tournament or not to tournament? You know, I want to talk about this generally right now in this podcast, because after this podcast, the next one will be with Jeremy Pace. Um, Now today is Thursday, and I go pick up Jeremy tomorrow uh, from his hotel uh, and Derek Nash as well, and that's really we're gonna we're gonna be wrapping off each other as far as tournament stuff, um, plus some other con- uh, concepts and, and and ideas. But I want to give you kind of just a list, right? Just a basic list of some of the things I think about regarding tournaments, uh, and it's gonna fit into two categories: good and bad. And then after I talk about good and bad, then I'm just make some general comments regarding the three tracks um, and uh, some business aspects about this concept of tournament or not tournament, and then kind of end the podcast at that point because I want to pick it up again with, uh, with Jeremy and Derek. So look, here's some good things regarding tournaments, okay? Well, number one is competition. If anyone pays any attention to the history of European combat and European arms, then uh, you'd be silly to tell me that there's no background in history in tournaments. I mean, the entire history and the entire scope of of European um, history is littered with tournaments and competitions and other games uh, meant to allow people to express themselves in a competitive way. Um, the modern idea of competition is that it does prepare people for combat. It's one of the tools that uh, police departments and military teams use to try and get their people ready for, in some, in some, um, in some ways, and also prepared for combat-type situations. Now, granted, games are not combat, 
but they're used as an entrance into that kind of format so that people get some sense and some semblance of, of that close feeling. Um, does that mean the tactics and techniques that you use in games are the same as in combat? No, absolutely not. That's not the case. But by adding that pressure, by adding that feeling of competition, by adding that um, extraneous kind of element to whatever activity you're doing, separate from drilling or exercising, gives you some window into what it's like to go into combat. It helps to prepare you for combat, and this is something that is known throughout history and time memorial. Um, it's not something that can be debated because it's just fact. Not only is it fact and, and researched as fact, but it's also just something you, you understand um, at a basic common sense level, right? So, you know, anyone who's done a tournament of any kind understands this extraneous pressure I'm talking about, whether it's the crowd watching you or whether you're, you know, fighting with your own competitive spirit and sense of um, discipline and sense of feeling of, you know, um, uh, striving forward in, in whatever particular game or whatever you're doing, you want to succeed, you want to overcome another human being, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one kind of match, like wrestling or fencing, certainly, and other things. In other words, it's, it's not just the techniques, it's not just the sport itself, it's also all these other uh, things around that that game or that element which which really play into it you know do you have the confidence to to carry yourself in such a way that you're performing and doing all the things you need to do you know i did speak with one of uh, the WHFA's tournament fighters one time when, you know, he told me, he's like, well, I'm trying new things here in the tournament. And I'm like, you know, the tournament is not the time to try new things, right? And that, that happens when you're back home, right? That happens when you're, when you're sparring with, with your training partners. You can get some feedback and understand. You know, and the tournament is the time to go with the things that work for you most of the time and that you're super confident in. That's not the time to experiment, right? Uh, and, and some fighters kind of look at it that way. Well, dang it, I'm going to experiment. It's like, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to change your mind at all. I'm just trying to say like, you know, formatively as far as like a, a strategy, a strategy of going into the game is not to try all sorts of new stuff that you've never tried before and don't really know if it's going to work or not, right? That's the time to do stuff that you have done a million times, that you have all the, all the reps in and stuff. And so that's, that's the difference, right? The other thing that's good about it is it has a nice spirit of core, right? Like you can get a group of people together and, you know, wear your Badger t-shirts or, well, you know, whatever. We have a specific little sub patch that we give people that do tournaments. And it's the, if you've seen it out there, it's that uh, Badger patch that we wear, right? The tournament Badger patch. Um, and it goes below our other patch. And it just indicates, you know, you know, remember this club. And by the way, I do tournaments and we're going to recognize that because that's a different level of stress that you're willing to put yourself through. And frankly, money. Uh, we'll talk about that in the bad maybe. But um, so, yeah, a good group feeling. It's fun traveling around with your compatriots and your team members. Right. It's kind of neat to, to go to these things and represent a, a team. Um, it's good to have group goals. You know, you can get together with your team on, on the weekends and be like, let's go for a six-mile run together and do some calisthenics and, and that kind of stuff. Um, pressure testing of the techniques. 
You know, it depends, doesn't it, on, and I'm not going to say it depends on the rule sets. What it depends upon is the overriding um, feeling of that tournament in terms of how it's organized. I've been to tournaments before that, you know, it didn't matter what rule set they used. It was just going to be the person that swung the hardest and tried to take the other person's head off as best as they could that was going to win, you know, regardless of what techniques they were going to be using. And you can argue with me all you want, but when you see people coming out of some kind of match with concussions and, you know, bloody faces and broken bones and things, that's, that's really not... That's really not about fencing, really. It's, it's about who's going to hit as hard as they possibly can, right? Um, and some people might say, well, that is fencing. Don't they say to fence with all your strength? Yeah, they certainly do. But that's to save your life. That's to kill another human being. This is a competitive arrangement in which we're going to kind of agree not to do that, right? We're going to agree to go in there and compete and use techniques and use strategy, use some strength, but not all strength, right? Like there's men out there and women out there who will knock your dang head off regardless of what kind of head helmet you have on. So, you know, I look at it as there are tournaments out there that kind of push the idea of uh, the strongest shall prevail and those kind of arrangements. Then you're just looking at it like a, like a melee, right? Reminds me of this uh, series that's coming out on the History Channel where they're going to get a bunch of guys and put them in kit and then they're going to beat the hell out of each other and see, you know, who wins. Did you ever see some of the, the things they're doing, like jabbing each other with an axe, like in the back of the knee and, you know, like they're chopping down a tree and stuff? I mean, that is just crazy. I, I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of it's kind of neat to see someone willing to put the armor on and go through that. But on the other hand, like, is that really something that we want to push as, as what we're going to look at as the future of, of the idea of HEMA? Man, I don't think so. I don't think so because in my mind, that's not really martial arts. I mean, I could put, um, put some bruiser in armor uh, that doesn't feel anything and is about 350 pounds of solid, you know, roided up muscle, give him a bunch of cocaine and then send him in that ring and he's going to bust some heads with an axe, right? Uh, that's different than someone who's invested in learning you know, the techniques, invested in learning the sources, invested in learning how the armor works and the different tools you would use for the armor. And, you know, you can argue with me, yeah, that yeah, they would just, that's what would happen when your life's on the line. And, you know, to some extent, I think that might be true. But my point is, is that desirable for us? Like, we don't have to do that, right? Because we're not actually in combat trying to kill each other. So instead, is that, is that the face we want to put out there? Is, are we going to hold this up and say, this, this is HEMA. Put armor on and then beat the hell out of each other until someone comes out with a concussion or a skull fracture or, or something, you know? Man, I saw one of those, one of those uh, meets where there was a guy with an open um, open visored soleil that had someone take a bill, right? So a large like glaive kind of thing on the end of an eight foot pole and stick that thing right through that slit, right? Uh, the guy went down like a ton of bricks. Um, I, th I think I read he had like a busted orbital and um, maybe his eye was all swelled up and stuff, but he didn't lose the eye um, and he ended up being all right. But man, someone's going to get killed in that and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, you know, it's just a matter of time. And then if that does happen, then I guess one or two things are going to occur and either it's going to become more popular because people are going to be like, wow, this is really serious business 
or it's going to become like outlawed. So I, I don't really know which way it's going to go, but I am concerned for a lot of reasons. You know, I've been in armor, as many of you know. I've, I've been um, on the receiving end of blows and things, and it's no joke. It's, it's not something you want to screw around with. Um, armor and armored fighting, especially if you try and do it in a historical way, there needs to be a hell of a lot of respect for what's happening there. Otherwise, you're going to end up in some serious trouble quickly. Because again, look, they're not, they're not developing these techniques and tools to, to run around and, and, you know, not take lightly, right? Even, even in the time period, they, they took it very seriously and understood where the, where the lines were. And, and when they were crossed, you know, you would hear about it, right? Because it was famous, you know, so-and-so got a axe through the face or something. And, and that's all bad. And um, sometimes they get prosecuted. Sometimes they would just be embarrassed to the point where they would just disappear from social life or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, there's a lot of consequences to that kind of stuff. And, and we'll see in the modern era what kind of consequences we face if something of that, of that nature happens. I mean, my prediction for that show is it's going to be like the Full Metal Joust show. Um, it's going to be interesting for like one season, possibly two, and then it's going to dissipate, I think. And that's that's too bad because I think that concept could really go far. I mean, I cannot believe there's nobody out there that's interested in learning about what we are doing with uh, with HEMA um, in its more popular f- phase, right? Not all the armored stuff that they're just going out and beating the crap out of each other, but what we are doing and, and how we are striving and how we are working and how we are networking and associating and all the little rivalries that are occurring, even within your own clubs sometimes. You know, there's tons of personal stories involved in this kind of stuff that could be exploited for uh, public interest for some kind of show. So I don't really know what the problem is, but if you're some kind of producer out there listening to this, man, you need to get with it. There's tons of cool stuff we could be doing. Anyways, um, the other thing that's good about tournaments is that um, it's this, this modern comprehension of an easily understandable placing. So like first place. Well, we all know that getting first place in a tournament of like 100 fighters is a pretty big deal probably, you know? So someone who's not familiar with what we do can look at somebody wearing a medal that's gold and can say, wow, that that person has succeeded. It's very obvious. It's very easy to understand that. Um, you don't have to worry about like, well, what, what art is it? What weapon was it? It's just, I'm first place, right? Okay, wow, big deal. Good job, you know? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Good job, you. So, um, and also, uh, it's a good community presence in a way because it kind of forces us to look at each other, right? Um, There's, and I'll just be honest with this too, um, because I decided in my podcast I'm going to be completely honest and less political. Um, Not that I am crazy political, but, you know, I, I do like everybody probably just be a little careful on the Facebook and um, on the e-lists and things just be a little careful about how it is you say things but in this podcast you can hear my tone understand my inflection and I think it's important just to to put it all out there so uh, yeah we we can't really ignore each other in some ways and I think in the past you know if somebody was like teaching something or having a bunch of students and they were doing something or other it was like man you know I'm not going to pay attention to that because it's 
kind of annoying me for whatever reason. And they were usually petty reasons, and they were usually reasons that had nothing to do with uh, the practice of HEMA. They're all those personal things that can get in the way of um, having to look at each other, right? And so now when we have these tournaments and people are winning trophies and medals and things, we have to say like, all right, we got to take a look at this. What are they doing? You know, how, how is it working? Um, is this uh, something that's valid? In other words, it just makes us, it forces us to take a look at it, right? And that, that can be good and it can be bad, but it is, right? And that's something. So now let's talk about the bad. Um, geez, martially effective stuff versus points. Um, you know, points. Uh, I can't tell you now how many times I'm fighting in a tournament setting and I strike in the vor, right? For those that don't know, I strike first. So my sword is coming at their body. And instead of doing something about that, even if it's getting out of the way of that sword coming at you, but it, but it should be intercepting that sword with some kind of technique or tactic, right, that's taught in our system. Instead of doing that, they're going to duck down below and take a swipe at my midsection or try and stab me in the balls or, you know, try and hit me in the ankle or something and, and get a point at least. And they're going to sacrifice taking four points and, and getting one or two or something, depending on the point structure system that that tournament is using. And that drives me crazy because, you know, it's hard to use a system of fencing, a system of fence in which I am attempting to um, interact with their defense, i.e. their weapon in most cases, and then do something from that interaction um, when they refuse to interact. And, you know, you can refuse to interact and do it in such a way that you're using abzug or using changing through or you're using some of these techniques to get out of the way or out of the line of the incoming sword. That's really not what I'm talking about. And until you're in this position and see what happens and feel what happens and understand what's going on, yeah, it just pisses you right off because it's like nowhere in any of our tradition is this taught, right? Can you imagine if it was? Imagine a manual that would come out that would say to you, okay, fighter, so you're going to um, move into measure, and as you move into measure, they're going to be throwing a... a overstrike at you, an uberhau, they're going to be striking you in the face, and you're going to just take that cut to the face, and then you're going to cut them in the ankle, right? How many students do you think that master would have over time? I'm betting probably like zero, because they'd all be dead, right? Uh, we'd never hear about that. And who knows? Maybe there was a guy out there who was making money back in the 14th century telling people to try and avoid those those uber house and take people out by their ankles because then they can't move but oh sorry you know you don't have a face anymore but don't worry about it you know who knows maybe that manual will be discovered and uh, we can put that on the weekend hour and see how that goes but so I, I digress um as you can tell i'm pretty passionate about that topic because it drives me crazy um i've seen a ton of athletic really passionate um, fencers do this kind of thing and nobody seems to be talking about it and it just kind of drives me nuts so yeah um, how about uh, in relation to that then a loss of connection to the manuscripts and the, the foundational materials um, yeah so so if it's all about points and the system then it becomes less about the art and really the art comes down to this when you're fighting with a blunt 
sword made for practice, you still need to treat it as if it is a sharp sword and as if your body is not protected. We are trying to practice blosfectin, right? Which is, or blosfectin, however you want to say it, uh, which is fighting unarmored, right? So you're not, you don't have armor on, right? That's what you're supposed to understand. The armor that you do have on is sport armor made just to soften the blow, but do it in such a way that you still feel the blow. So if you're getting hit anywhere, right? then it should be treated as if that's your bare skin or your simple garments, not some kind of armor. There's plenty of fighters out there, too, who wear tons of armor and really don't feel much, right? Well, if they don't feel much, then they don't really fear much. So because they're not in fear and they're not feeling much, they're going to be acting and moving in such a way that's kind of crazy, right? That, that kind of goes beyond the system. It's like somebody said to me one time, we were fighting or something, I mentioned this, and they said, well, you know, I, I didn't feel it at all. I'm like, well, I know you didn't feel it. You have like seven layers of different types of protection on, so no shit, you can't feel it. And they said something about like, well, you know, that's, that's good. And I'm like, well, it's not good, you know, because now you don't really give a shit if you get hit. So you're not necessarily in fear of what I do. And because of that, then you can just stand there and get hit in the face while you try and swipe my knee or something. And that's just not, it's just not helpful for figuring out who's, who's learning fencing based on the manuscripts and then showing that understanding under the stress of a tournament environment, right? It's not really proving that. It's just proving I've got a shit ton of armor on and you can hit me wherever and I don't care. I don't feel it, so I'm not afraid of it and I'm not using any technique other than just, you know, what I think is some kind of technique, which is this crazy, you know, baseball bat swing or whatever it's going to be. You see where I'm going with that. Another person brought uh, a sword that must have been, you know, 10 feet long and weighed about eight pounds, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just not helpful for understanding fencing, right? And you can start to understand and, and feel what those folks were up to when they came up with the Fetterschwart, right, with the, with the, school, the Schulfechten sword and the idea of, okay, you're not going to be armored at all, not even your head will be armored. Um, uh, there's a, a large amount of fear. And, you know, in my formative years in HEMA, that's how we fenced primarily. We fenced without any protective equipment whatsoever, including masks, uh, which is crazy. You know, when I look at it now, it's nuts. But um, at the same time, it did give me a healthy respect and understanding for some of the concepts I'm discussing. Um, now, I don't recommend you do this at all. I think it's entirely insane. But, but I do think the opposite of that and wearing a crap ton of protection uh, in such a way that you feel nothing at all is also detrimental. Um, regarding the large sword the person brought, um, you know, weighed like eight pounds or whatever, something ridiculous. Um, they were like, well, it's, you know, the best tool I can find for this particular thing. I'm like, you know, I could find a cannon and roll that mother out here, you know, and then load that sucker up. And then when they say, okay, fence, you know, I just blow a cannon off and then blow you right out of the other side of the gym. You know, how, how about that? Why can't I do that? That's, that's something that's in our manuals. I've seen cannon in manuals. Why can't I do that then? You see what I'm saying, right? So if we can just get away from the idea of patting ourselves to that extent where we feel nothing, yet protecting ourselves in such a way that's reasonable and makes sense, 
uh, having some kind of consistency as far as the weapons so that, you know, the weight of them and the construction of them is not so advantageous. That's just, you know, blowing the crap out of everything else. Um, I would really like to see, and you know, the, the Madison, uh, Madison Fech Schoolin, the, the thing they ran was very interesting. Chris Van Slambrook uh, ran it, and essentially it took um, these, these, I think it was late 15th century rules that they had for these tournaments, for the guild tournaments um, in Germany and such, which are written down, by the way, you can research them, which is, you know, something that people don't understand either sometimes. Um, and they just adopted those, and that's what we used. Uh, now, granted, we had some more protection on than they, they use. We had masks on and everything. But the whole idea was really interesting because you didn't really score the points until you successfully accomplished the Abzug and getting out of Dodge, right, which was really cool. Um, but it was kind of one of those continuous fight things, and it, it was really, really, I think, a great experience. And it really, it really showed for me um, some of the thought behind... Uh, actual practice for actual combat um, because you want to get in, you want to cause damage, you want to get out safely, right? And that makes tons of sense, um, especially from someone who's, you know, occupied with with um, the actuality of of interpersonal combat in in that kind of setting, right? You know, like a civilian setting, right? On about town, and I can walk around a corner and you know someone can try and shoot me, you know, just walking up to the next call or something on duty, but. I mean, you're all in danger too, right? No, no one's safe, but you understand the difference, I hope. Um, so, um, also, I think it's uh, important to talk about maybe an elitist atmosphere. All of a sudden, there's all these talking heads, right, that are talking about the fights and thinking they they know everything about these particular fighters and such. And it, uh, you know, in some cases they do, they know the fighters involved, but in some cases they're making a lot of um, wide sweeping statements. Oh, this fighter's the best fighter, this, this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, meh, you know, it's your position. It's kind of your role to sit there and, and talk up the fighters and stuff. And that's cool. But I think we're, we've got to be careful that we're not creating this elitist atmosphere as all these so-called experts who are going to now um, decide, you know, who the best fighters are. I think that's not a good thing. That's kind of a dangerous, slippery slope thing. So so that's that. Um, okay, so that's the good and bad list generally. Um, there are more things to each of these lists. Some of the things I spent a lot of time on or I didn't really mean to, but some of the things are more or less important. Um, I don't really look at any one of these areas as more or less important than the others. They're kind of a mixed bag, a, kind of a, a free-for-all kind of idea. And now I want to just relate it back to the three tracks that I talked about. You know, the, in the three tracks, there's the enthusiast, there's the traditionalist, and there's the sport. And tournaments are solely sitting in the sport track. Those persons that do these tournaments... For the sport track, they have accepted these good and bad things uh, regarding tournaments, and they are um, dealing with them in such a way that the competitive aspects of the tournament outweigh the negative aspects of them. And one of the things I think that's important to, to protect is that they're aware of those bad things, right? So if they just go into the tournaments and they're having success in tournaments, but they have no idea what any of the techniques are historically... Are you know? Are you really doing HEMA, right? And these are the some of the questions that many of us have asked over the years, um, and it's it's a valid question. It's something that has to be thought about. 
So that's where I'm going to leave it for today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, if you do enjoy it, please talk about it. It is helping me immensely to, to spread the word. I am receiving a lot of questions from you all out there, and I encourage you to keep doing it. Again, my email is swordcoach at gmail.com, and I look forward to hearing from you all and continuing. On the next podcast, I will have Jeremy Pace um, and then Derek Nash after that, and we will be talking about a wide range of topics, including uh, the tournament performance I mentioned in the first podcast, as well as some other training concepts uh, and some other things generally. So have a good day. Train hard. Bye.